Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. It's election season and summer's on the way. Both will bring the country some relief. It'll be good to be warm again. And it'll also be good to know where our politics are. I don't know about you, but I've sort of lost touch with who stands where. Even though we're just talking about local elections here on November 1, they'll actually be the best possible opinion poll of national opinion before the next general election in 2024. Can the ANC possibly hold above 50%? Is the EFF rising or falling? Can the DA get back the white votes it lost in 2019? These and many other questions always lead me to the same guy. Former DA leader Tony Leon, always a wise head and always great company. And this time I've got the tiniest little bone to pick with him as well. Not a big one, Tony. But you know that one of my sports is to tease the DA about it not having an economic policy. They normally explain that they have a lot of economic policies or policies about the economy, but they really just mean, you know, their labor policy, their housing policy, public works and stuff like that. You wrote the other day, and for the life of me, I can't find it now, that critics like me may go on about the lack of economic policy in the DA, but that having one would probably not attract any new votes for the DA anyway, or words to that effect. What do you mean? You mean the DA doesn't need an economic policy? No, I didn't mean that, but uh, hello, Peter, and thank you very much for inviting me onto your uh, estimable podcast. <laughs> Great to be with you uh, again. Uh, what I actually meant was, I, I think the DA does need an economic policy, and whether it has one or hasn't one, uh, it, one can debate. And I think the more material issue in the loom, looming election and on 1 November is whether the absence or the presence of a policy is going to swing voters. Uh, in that sense, I think whether the DA has good, bad or absent economic policy is not going to change very much. My point was that uh, voting in this country and actually in many other places in the world is an act of identity. So what do people do when they vote? If they think that the party that they're voting for represents their values, uh, is says something about them as citizens, as members of a community, they are more likely to vote for that party than not. I think what the DA is trying to do in this election, whether they'll do it successfully or not, we'll see on the 2nd of November, is to switch from a values-based approach more to a transactional approach, as is evident in their new slogan, the DA gets things done. And you are speaking to me from the Eastern Cape and you resident in the Western Cape. And as you know, and many other folk know, you just drive between the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape. It's to inhabit two different worlds in terms of broadly effectively delivered services in the one and in many areas, and you've written about this so eloquently in places like Mtata and elsewhere, a complete dystopian wasteland on the other. And I think the DA is trying to say, look, give us your vote and you can have better services, live in a better area with a less corrupt councillors, which is really a transactional offer, as opposed to saying, when you vote for us, you are voting for your whole identity, whether it's as an African or a South African and so forth. And I think it's going to be, it's up in the air as to which of those two offers is going to resonate uh, more significantly when people vote on the 1st of November. So I think a lot of it will depend around that rather than the presence or absence of economic policy. I only raise it, Tony, because you you and, and Ryan Kutsia and Michael LaRue famously authored the report after the 2019 general election at former leader Musi Maimani's uh, request 
a report into the policy, into the failings of the DA and why it had done so badly. And you talk about uh, in this report, uh, and it's not a point that I particularly want to labor, but you say, look, you know, we recommend, and then there are five recommendations, I think, that the party urgently undertake a well-structured policy development program to give effect to its vision for South Africa that is both values-driven and evidence-based and that appropriate resources are made available for it. And two, that the foundation of the policy program should be an economic policy that would enable growth, opportunity, and inclusion. Now, I understand that when you're writing something, you put your heart into it and you mean it when you say it. Um, but it's you're very emphatic in that report, and they very emphatically haven't done what you said that they should do. Well, well, that might well be. So, listen, I, I don't want to overinflate the role that Ryan, Michiel, and I played, but we were really sitting as judges on a panel. We hand over a report. What the party does or doesn't do with it is not something that I control, nor should I. And, you know, um, without being uh, impolitic, I'm not one of those former leaders who still wishes to be a leader, so I don't involve myself in the day-to-day -day governance of the DA. Look, I, I think that is emphatically true. And in fact, last week, although he's a bit of a dull dog, so probably didn't break through that much, I listened to Keir Starmer's speech at the Labour Party conference. And there's one sentence in that speech, which applies to socialists, capitalists, all points of traffic in between in the political spectrum, and certainly in South Africa. And what Keir Starmer said at the Labour conference in Brighton last week was the following. He said, Without a strong economy, we cannot pay for a good society. Without a strong economy, we cannot pay for a good society. So you, Peter, have done the uh, yeoman public service of reading the ANC election manifesto for November, and you said, there is nothing, not a single word of any merit or interest in it. I've read it. I'll never get that time back. One of the great quotes for the ages. So it's entirely true. Now, I did the same service for the purpose of a column we both write, or we write separate columns, same newspaper, Business Day. And I looked at the DA manifesto, which is 37 pages long and has some estimably good ideas in it, ranging from how to have more effective local policing, to get uh, independent uh, uh, electricity supplied to municipalities, all very good stuff. The gaping hole in the DA offer, and even much more so in the ANC offer, is anything about the supply side. I mean, it is one of the extraordinary things of our politics is that everyone ramps up the demand side. We want a service for this. We want a grant for that. We want uh, better pavements. We want all good necessary things, what Keir Starmer called the uh, good society. But no one in this election is talking about how it's going to be paid for. And you know, we are facing, and you would have seen the figures, Peter, a shrinking tax base. And Azir um, Jamin in April pointed out uh, for econometrics that 5.8% of the total population pays 92% of all the taxes. And then other studies have shown that we've actually lost 10,000 taxpayers in the upper cohort of 750,000 Rand plus. And something like $4,000 millionaires have left this country in the last 10 years. So there's a shrinking revenue base, whether it's for municipalities or national government. And nobody is saying, well, how are we going to plug this hole or address this gap? And that is about the supply side of things. 
And I do find that a gaping hole in all the parties' manifestos, including, I have to say, the party which I have the most affection and allegiance, and that is the DA. I was just going to ask you another question about the, about the DA. It, um, it's interesting in the party itself, and you can maybe be able to explain this, how sort of siloed it seems to be. Um, you know, not only is there no central economic message uh, for everyone to repeat ad nauseum, as you might expect from, say, Tory MPs in the UK, but only the leader seems to be able to really speak, you know, for the, for the, for the party anyway. I mean, generally, you don't hear shadow cabinet ministers standing up and making strong points about policy on the television or, or you know, in front, of, in front of reporters. I mean, what would happen if Glynis Breitenbach stood up and made a strong speech about, you know, the, um, the effects of localization? Or, is it, is it, well, she's meant to speak um, on justice matters, and I hope – I don't know. I hope she well, that's, but that's not what so she's meant to. So she, you basically stick to your lane, right? Is that what you Well, mean? I think so. Otherwise, it would be a bit anarchic. But – I mean, broadly, there should be people out there who push various messages. Look, I uh, political communication is a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, imperfect science, and I guess during an election you want the leader and you want the mayoral candidates. Uh, the, the the Cape Town mayoral candidate, whom I share very high regard for, leaving aside the fact that he stands for the DA, Jordan Hill Lewis, he's been uh, quite active. I've seen you know in the media, in the social media putting forward various policy proposals. And I don't know about the other mayoral candidates, whether they're as effective. And one might say that the DA actually has mayoral candidates, whereas the ANC is all hidden behind a veil of secrecy to be appointed by the Politburo after the election. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess that uh, what parties do, and, and even the ANC does this, if you look at their particular messaging, they tend to all get behind Cyril your friend, because Cyril is far more popular than the party. So I guess a lot of the political communication has to do with who tests better with the voting public. And that probably, I don't know for certain, informs who does the talking on the party's behalf. Is there a thing, is there a thing, um, this is my last question about economic policy. Is it, a, is it something historically, historically that in South Africa, at least, that liberals have sort of left, left the line? Um, you know, there isn't, um, and I, you know, I, I don't know what state South African liberalism was when I was born in the 50s or the 60s much, but, you know, it, it, there's not really much evidence that there was ever an economic center to what passes for South African liberalism now, which in, in the sense that the DA represents it or the DP before it or the Progressive Party before that. I, I would disagree with you only in this respect. So... When I was at university, which is a long time ago in the 1970s, so that was a, I was fed a diet of Marxism by all my lecturers who were very Marxist at yes. university in the late 1970s, early 1980s. They weren't liberals. They weren't liberals at all. So we, 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 we had Marxist economics one, two, three. And yeah. Add yeah. So the, the counterpoint, if, if you like, to this was the actual liberal thesis, the extent it was ever presented, uh, in our classes, which was to some extent, was actually by, by a leading liberal economist who actually was Anglo-American Michael O'Dowd. And, and, you know, Michael O'Dowd's fundamental thesis, actually not that different in a different take on what Keir Starmer was saying last week, was basically as, as the economic growth path rises in South Africa, the need for workers will become greater, the shackles of racism will lessen out of 
economic necessity. So if you punt high economic growth, you're actually going to help get rid of apartheid, which in a, in a, well, a lot of other things happened, but there was some truth in that thesis. And when I first got elected into political office, which is way back in 86, 1986 in the Joburg City Council, Charles Simpkins did some very useful updates on what liberal economic thinking should be. And, and you yourself, let me say, Peter Bruce, I think you're a liberal. You know, you, you've championed in South Africa the idea of stakeholder capitalism. I, I am very much a believer in uh, the old liberal adage, as mo much market as possible, as much state as necessary, as my friend Otto Lumsdorff used to be the leader of the FDP in Germany used to put it. So I, I think there's a big offer liberal politicians can make. They can make about, you know, improving freedom. They can make it about liberalizing everything from education to uh, to uh, sub township economies. I, I think there's a lot to be done. Whether it is being done effectively at all is a different matter, but it should be done. And, you know, when I became leader of the DP, it was very, although the party had very few voters in 1994, it was all over the place. And it, it was a bit of sort of, you know, old socialist rhetoric. It was a struggle against the party. And the first thing I did was to clarify the party messaging. Now, I got accused at the time of being a sort of Thatcherite, but at least the party had a distinctive standpoint from which it could uh, defend itself and advance its propositions. And that is why, leaving aside the election, because I'm not sure your thesis is correct in terms of turning votes, I think it is indispensable, Peter, in terms of a party having a fixed point of reference to have a strong economic policy that can then be popularized, whether it's saying to people, this is how we will give you uh, better educational chances, this is how you can have access to private healthcare because of one, two, and three. And if you don't have the one, two, and three, everything else becomes uh, basically the stuff of fantasy rather than reality. Well, it would be lovely to see those lessons, you know, from Michael O'Dowd and Charles Simpkins coming out of the mouths of DA politicians, and maybe we'll get there. You know, maybe now is not quite the time or this is not quite the election. Just talk about the election generally. Everybody seems to be, Tony, a little... This is a kind of quite a defensive election, isn't it? I mean, the ANC is apologising to left, right and centre, ask, asking for another chance. Um, the DA is keep, keeps taking up the kind of language, um, defensive positions on Stellenbosch and elsewhere. Um, how, how do you see it panning out? I mean, what is will we know anything more after this election than we know already? Well, I think we'll know a couple of things. The, the question is how successful have both defensive postures been? Who's been more successful? And, I, you know, I, I think what the, the DA is trying to do is to try and motivate its base, and particularly the base that it lost in the last election. I mean, you know, losing 450,000 voters is no uh, is 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 not to be underestimated, especially when you don't gain any more voters from anywhere else. So I think they're trying to get that back, and they're also trying to to mobilise their own base. I, if you go back to 2016, where the DA and the opposition generally did extremely well, um, what happened there was that ANC voters stayed away, and opposition voters voted en masse. So whether that can be repeated on 1 November will, I think, be quite significant, and that will help the opposition and harm the ANC. I do think reading <clears throat> the Darby-Scoltz analysis on the voter registration, that 
in part one of this election, who's registering and who isn't, the DA has been much more successful than the ANC. But of course, a lot can happen. You know, I was told by some DA luminary the other day, oh, we're we polling very well. And I said, hang on. I know, <laughs> because I led the party in a lot of national, several national and, and a lot of local elections until 2007. It all looks quite good until the last week. And then the ANC starts squeezing, squeezing, squeezing. And then the platform you're standing on starts shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. Now, you know, obviously they're aware of that. From the ANC point of view, I, I mean, I suppose the only thing that you can say that will help them is the fact they did so badly in 2016. So, uh, you know, they they lost Johannesburg. They lost uh, Chwani. They lost your neck of the woods, Nelson Mandela Bay, and, and they got absolutely clobbered in Cape Town. I mean, the, the, the DA land up with a two-thirds majority, which is unheralded anywhere in the metro. And and they even in Durban, under this is under Zuma, they went down, you know, to about 57%. So, you know, because they did so badly then, they perhaps, uh, you know, can, even if they do poorly now, they can say, well, it's better than 2016, if they do better than they did in 2016. That's a big presupposition. The DA, in contrast, or by contrast, did very well in 2016. And I guess if they don't eclipse or improve their 2016 result, which is going to be very hard, they'll say, oh, but we did much better than we did in the last national election 2019. And whose narrative wins might be as important as who wins at the ballot box. The the big variant or variable in this election, Peter, in my view, and what I pick up on the grapevine, is that the EFF is apparently starting to eat into the ANC heartland and KwaZulu-Natal. And if the uh, underbelly of the DA is Johannesburg, which it really is, the DA has got to perform very well in Johannesburg. It's going to do fine in Cape Town, but most of the DA votes are on Joburg and Pretoria. They've got to perform very well there. But the ANC has got to perform very well in KwaZulu-Natal. And if for what I'm picking up on the grapevine, the EFF is starting to eat into the ANC support there and, and in Carter and the DA and the suburbs, then I think the ANC is going to have a very poor election result on the 1st of November. On the other hand, you know, they will ramp up the pressure, even though they are bankrupt and ideologically out of ideas, uh, in the run-up to the election. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Sul Ramaphosa has hardly been to KwaZulu-Natal um, uh, since the violence of July, in my in my memory, he's only been there for two hours since the looting broke out. Now, uh, you know, perhaps for reasons of personal safety or political caution or ANC factionalism, he's probably very unpopular in Durban, even though he's popular perhaps in the rest of the country. Um, but but that that tells you a lot. Uh, and if the ANC is at war with itself in KwaZulu Natal, it's difficult to see. Um, exactly uh, how they're going to recover ground on the 1st of November, because really, um, that's where the ANC uh, uh, electoral bank has been, KwaZulu-Natal. Yeah, yeah. The last sort of topic. I've been watching, uh, not as closely as I should have, because I'm, I'm on holiday at Kenton-on-Sea, which is very beautiful, and I think it's a DA, it's a DA municipality, I'm not sure. Port Alfred, Kenton. Anyway, it's jolly clean. <laughs> um, and the, you know the water, the water comes out of the tap um, just fine. Up the road in Grahamstown, it's not the same story. Uh, or Makanda, the Judicial Service Commission, right? So it met a couple of months ago. There was some pretty spectacular interviews of candidates for the Constitutional Court. The their selection was, or the process was challenged by 
KSAC, uh, which won, and they had to do it again. And they've gone and interviewed pretty much the same judges again, except one poor lady who was particularly badly bullied, I thought. And they've, they've selected the same judges for the constitutional court that they had in the first place. Was the process any better? Is that any? Is the decision having was the decision made the second time a better decision, even though it was the same one, than it was made than was made the first time? Well, I, I don't know. I, I was actually sent the minutes of the first judicial service commission meeting, the one, the infamous one in April, and actually it was outrageous. And I'm not surprised that the judicial service commission collapsed on the doors of court and gave KSAC the order it wanted, including the provision of those minutes. Because basically the Chief Justice, since you know, gone on a religious tour and on long leave since, presented the Judicial Service Commission with a list of five people. There was barely any discussion except about the absence of David Unterhalter's uh, long period on the bench. And they then approved a list of five. And everyone approved that list, other than a, an advocate called Jenny Kane. I mean, it was shocking. The ANC, the DA, the EFF. They all went behind the Chief Justice's five names. Now, I don't know what the voting was yesterday, obviously, but uh, maybe there was some difference, but but the net result was the same. And, and I need to say this with some caution because he's a very old friend of mine. But leaving aside any subjectivity, the fact that South Africa and its Judicial Service Commission can discard the extraordinary judicial talents and legal abilities of someone like David Unterhalter is, is beyond comprehension, except, of course, on the grounds that he is a white male. And that seems to be the alpha and omega of a huge amount of decision-making. The fact that it's now infected the appointment of judges, I think is a great pity, but there it is. Yeah. Tony, so tell us about the Judicial Services Service Commission. I mean, it is it people keep saying it's broken um, and this is it. It's all over for the JSC. But nonetheless, it, you know, it doesn't fall apart. It doesn't stop existing. You you were one of you were on the committee that the, at the constitutional talks that formed the JSC. Yes. So it was my was, well. I, I've got to tell you the background very briefly. It, it was in October, just before the interim constitution was agreed at Kempton Park, nineteen ninety three. I, I was the justice spokesman for the DP. Just to give you a brief background, and the Minister of Justice Kirby Kutsia phoned me up one day, and I was his opposition, and he said, "I've." going to send you a document if you're near a fax machine. It shows you how long ago this was. And uh, perhaps you might want to blow the whistle on it. And lo and behold, I stood next to the fax machine at Edward Nathan and Friedland, where I was an attorney. And up comes this agreement that's been signed by Kwebe Kutsia, the National Party Minister of Justice, and Dula Omar, the ANC spokesman on justice at the time, later minister. And they'd agreed that the cabinet would appoint the judges to the Constitutional Court. That was it, with one small proviso that four of the nine or whatever the number was would have to come from the existing ranks of the judiciary. And what Kutsia was doing was trying to get out of an agreement he'd been instructed, whether it was by Rolf May or F.W. de Klerk to sign, and he thought, we'll get this opposition chap to blow the whistle. And I did, and we mobilized a huge constituency of academics and legal practitioners against it. And we then thrashed out a compromise, Mr. Kutsia, Mr. Omar, and myself, whereby we would interpose a Judicial Service Commission consisting primarily of independents. So they would be judges, lawyers, deans of law faculties, and some politicians. Unfortunately, what's happened in the intervening 27 years with various amendments and changes and finalization 
is the number of politicians has inflated. The number of genuine legal academics is reduced, and, and one can see it. I mean, the fact that the general counsel of the bar chosen its wisdom to appoint Dolly and Porfu, who happens to be you know, a leading light in the EFF and very vocal about it, uh, as one of its members, means that there's actually very little independent filtering going on. And JSC meetings, to the extent that they happen properly at all, are often reduced into political grandstanding. And there's a very strong inference, and Cyril Ramaphosa didn't deny it in his very poor testimony of the Zondo Commission, that actually the ANC caucus or deployment committee decides on the nominees. And so it becomes almost a smoke and mirrors exercise without proper, robust interrogation of who is the person who's fit for purpose to assume higher judicial office. Now, it doesn't happen always, of course, and there are exceptions, but it seems to be the depressing reality. And unless the JSC is revamped, the number of politicians reduced, its independence retained, some kind of uh, competence and expertise. I mean, just the fact that it took so long to deal with John Schlope, uh, you know, something like 14 years before finally recommending for impeachment. And now you have this, you know, cosmic joke that John Schlope and the absolutely legally incompetent public protector uh, Mkwabani have both been shortlisted for appointments as the chief judicial officer's chief justice. So I don't know. The other problem lies in, in the president's office. You know, when Mandela was president, he had Fink Asim, who was a preeminent lawyer, as his legal advisor. Tom and Becky had the very controversial Majunka Gumbi as his legal advisor, but uh, she was very front and center of things. I don't know who Sora Imposa's chief legal advisor is. What I do know is with something as cardinal and critical as a point of chief justice, he waited until the 16th of September to get the process going, even though the current chief justice is leaving next week. So, you know, you've got to say clearly the uh, appointments and the uh, process of judicial uh, office bearers is very low on the agenda of Ramaphosa, and it's replicated by the I would say, essential problems that we've seen in the JSC. How would you rate Mahueng Mahueng's term as Chief Justice? Oh, I think he's been a baleful influence on the court. Uh, he is going to be remembered largely for uh, the Nkandla judgment, which is true. It was an important marker. But, you know, I, I find him on the wrong side of many judgments that the majority of the court gives. I find his pronouncements extraordinary. I, I mean, his anti-vax sentiments, for example, when you're the chief judicial officer giving vent to what is basically a, a combination of religiosity and superstition, I think is profoundly problematic. And by all accounts, and I obviously don't know this firsthand, there's a sort of both a breakdown of, you know, atmospherics and collegiality in the court where it should prevail. And secondly, the fact that he's absent with leave in his case, and we now have, you know, a, a, a judicial crisis in the sense we don't have 11 judges and only six. So just he seems to be, you know, inert at best. And when he is active, it's often for the wrong reason. So I do not rate him highly. And I think once again, and we can go all the way back to the great O.D. Schreiner, who was overlooked as Chief Justice way back uh, in the 1950s. I think there is a succession of outstanding Chief Justices that we've never appointed. And the obvious one is... Um, Dick Hang Mosineki, who was turned down three times, and his sin, and maybe this is Unterhalter's sin as well, even about the racial thing, which doesn't apply to Mosineki, is he's too independent-minded. And if you don't have independent-minded judges, you don't have a independent judiciary. Who's your pick to replace him? 
Well, look, I actually my pick. This is probably condemn condemn the person at source, but anyway, would be Dunstan Malumbo, the judge president of Karting. I think he's I agree. a good judge. There, there seem to be two others. Look, Zondo is the safe choice, but it'll be a tip. He probably will be appointed because Cyril doesn't like to make decisions of consequence, and, and you know he's got the shortest uh, lifespan because he's got to retire what in about two years' time, and then you know he can kick it down the road, which is Cyril's expertise, and then. Look, I don't know the other serious contender, the SCA president, Mandisa Maya. I believe she's competent and, you know, pretty good. But I, I don't know. But I am aware of some of Malumbo's judgments and some of his stances. And he strikes me as having the right stuff. Dunstan Malumbo is a, is a very good guy. Tony Leon, what is it like to talk to you? That's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for coming back. I thought coming back, you've never been on this podcast before. No, um, I'll come again. <laughs> thank you. For and thank you too for listeners for joining us. I shall be away for a week, but back with you all the following week. A little rest for the weekend. Bye for now.